it is essential for our survival to use these powerful tools in the most humane and wise way. And the only way to guarantee that is not to shuffle the responsibility off to somebody else, but to make sure that every citizen understands science and technology to some extent. Lighten up, Francis. In Cypress, Texas, 6.08 p.m., New York City. This is a Collision Course, and our talk tonight is going to be about transient objects. Trying to roll into this second show, had a, had a hard time rolling into it. Took us over five minutes to get going. I keep on checking over at Skype. I have a poor network connection. I pray that we keep going. We need the mission to continue. The mission being the discussion of transient objects, objects like Oumuamua. Oumuamua, if you don't know, is that interstellar asteroid slash comet that came by uh, our inner solar system closest approach to the sun somewhere around October 16th, um, 2017. Uh, we're going to have on the show uh, a scientist, a research uh, astronomer, Karen Meech, PhD from MIT, to talk about her work with Oumuamua because she has done much uh, research and analysis and been on the front lines of the, uh, the research and as well the outreach uh, with the information about this interstellar traveler. Still confirming that I have good sound and that we're doing great. Karen's going to come in at uh, 6.30 p.m. New York time, 5.30 p.m. My, my time, 21 minutes from now. So I think uh, what we could get into is is why do we have uh, discussions like this on Collision Course uh, and where are we going uh, into the future with the show? I really want everyone to know uh, Collision Course was always designed to be a place where two uh, ideas uh, meet and the recognition of both sides uh, acknowledged and uh, some sort of debate and uh, analyzation of the two sides determined. And through the input of the surrounding parties, i.e. the observers of the discussion, truths and realizations of actualities can come to light. Uh, doing my research on our guest, Karen Meech, found uh, some interesting uh, information that I will speak to her about. And her discussion with a Native American chief regarding one of the missions that she was a part of and I'll tell you that that was the Deep Impact uh, uh, mission, and we're going to discuss that. We're going to discuss Oumuamua. It's coming in and it's going out and where it came from and why did I take pictures when I surely shouldn't have uh, that's all coming up in this next two hours of Collision Course Season 2. We're going to roll with some information um, about Karen because last week we had uh, Dr. Stephen Fuselier on and we had him right in the beginning of the show and I've decided that having someone on at the beginning of the show may not be as productive to me as having someone come in a half an hour into the show because I actually get to talk about our guest prior to the guest being there and the guest doesn't have to sit there through my platitudes and and when the guest does get here we can go ahead and uh talk transient objects asteroids near earth asteroids potentially hazardous asteroids and then the comets all the different cometary uh objects that um fly around in and out of our uh, inner solar system uh one of 
Karen Meech's uh, specialties is the uh, research of the delivery of volatiles to the inner solar system and to planets like Mars and Earth. And when I speak of volatiles, volatiles can be any type of liquid. And I guess what, we, what I should say is liquid first and volatile second because, you know, water is, is volatile and, and other types of liquids, uh, gases and liquids of other components can be considered volatiles and that they can be used uh, as a source of energy that can be transferred uh, volatilely. But from my uh, interest in transient objects like Oumuamua, it takes me back to the first days and the first season of Collision Course and the researching of the objects that were coming in and discussion and the interpretations of those objects. Fortunately for me, as I uh, go through the resources that we have available to us today, i.e. the media that is present in today's uh, markets regarding space and theories and science, there is a wealth of information and uh, libraries of data that one can get to and digest if they are so inclined. And that is something that I do constantly and ravishly. And it's something that makes me come on the air and speak to you all about the same process of where a citizen can go out and interpret the same information that scientists are if only they were to reach out and grasp onto that connection that we all have with these resources. Just like all the other podcasts and types of that, all their hosts have the opportunity to reach out to the guests that they bring onto their shows, and, and everyone has their point of interest for their next show. My point of interest really lies in two things. One is discussing with those who are doing research currently on certain topics. So we'll have a series of discussions and interviews, one week one, week two, week three, and then we're going to introduce a series of discussions about the science that is right on the realm of discovery. So our scientists are all involved with topics of interest, i.e. be it um, Stephen Fuselier with the IBEX and energetic neutral atoms or Karen Meech and interstellar travelers or Renu Mohatra with the Planet Nine search. They all have in the end, I believe, because it's all contained within our heliosphere, a connection with what science we're going to recognize in the future. Uh, it would be easy, it would be easy, let's put it this way, it would be easy to drop bombs on scientists as you have them on your show. When you're out reaching and reaching out to guests who, one, you've never connected with before and how are you going to connect with them, and two, promise to have a discussion that is viable and relevant to what they're recognizing at the moment, and then three, Trying not to step on anybody's toes at the same time, you have to figure out a process, uh, a procedure to come around full circle with each of the discussions that you have. So in the case of Dr. Stephen Fuchs there, we're going to go full circle when we start bringing up the electric universe and the dimensions, when I say dimensions, the depth of uh, what science recognizes today as physics and the difference in depth that the future 
view of physics and plasma and gravity interactions are going to be realized in the future. And that's my belief. And when you talk to the scientists who, like Dr. Stephen Fuchs there, who's doing the research, you find that in their writings, they're saying and speaking words, little to dismiss the fact that they're speaking in electric, in the case of the Dr. Fuchs there, in electric fashion. So when he's looking at interactions at the front of the Earth's magnetosphere, he's looking at electric interactions. If he's looking at particles flying in from an interaction that occurred outside our heliosphere, he's looking at interaction of the heliosphere and its magnetic field in the inner space medium. So we have to come back and talk about electric universe. So tonight with Karen Meach, we're going to talk about Umumu and and I find it interesting through my research, and we're going to have to come back around all the way because I don't know if I can actually, you know, uh, this first trip around ask point point blank. Well, if you have this interpretation, but we don't know. I may ask. I think I think speaking it out loud prior to the event uh, sets up a good result. And what we're talking about is Karen, the scientific, according to Karen Meach, observations of Oumuamua and what's going on with it. There's its reflectivity, uh, what that means into what its makeup is, its shape, what that means as far as has it ever, uh, is that shape uh, average or atypical in the solar systems as we see them. It's the way it maneuvers itself through space, um, the speed at which it moves itself through space. These are going to be questions that we're going to talk about with her because there's lots of interesting answers all about the aspects of and in the way that it's making its orbit and its tumbling and motions and its orbital path and why I wasn't able to use a telescope to go out and take a picture. So I, I guess I can say that now because I'll It'll be, then you'll know because I'll set it up because I'll tell her. We we had some email communications back and forth. Of course, when when you try to get a guest on, your most of the communications these days are done through email. If you don't know them personally, you reach out through their operations are and you send an email, a nice email, and you tell them that you would love to speak to them about a certain topic and the reason why you speak to them about a certain topic. And would you please get back to me so that I could set you up on such and such and such a day? And you give them three days. And if you give them three days, and hopefully they'll pick one out of three. Never pick one day. Never say I need you them one day. So you have communications back and forth. Normally what they'll do is they'll vet you somehow and try to confirm that this is going to be a, 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 a real discussion and not something that's going to waste their time because you don't want to waste a person's time, especially the, these calibers, because um, I don't want to for sure. And so in learning about her and what her views are is that in her discussions and, and how she talks about it, She'll tell you that it's very unreflective and that it could be made up of this, but it could be made up of metal. And she says in her discussions that, you know, even though we have these determinations of this, that, and the other thing, we really can't determine whether it's natural or not. And I find that, you know, that's very interesting because if you're going to... I guess if you're going to bring up the point, and these are recognized procedures for public speakers who publicly speak about important topics everyone's been lied to by omission which basically means you don't get told the truth because they just don't tell you in their discussion with you about what you're talking about and so 
you never know uh, when somebody's lying to you because you just never know because it'll never come across your ears. Uh, and I find it very interesting, though, in that when somebody speaks and they then therefore divulge some information which can be interpreted in some way intriguingly or interestingly or what do you mean that you can't confirm that it's not natural it could be artificial why would you why would that come up and the scientists will tell you though as a good scientist you have to have everyone has to question and it's the same reason why they took the radio they they listened to it with the radio sounds they want to be sure that it's that it's that it's not artificial that it's not something that came from another solar system directed by something else and so through our discussion tonight when i have her when i do have her on i'm going to ask her about those interpretations and so i want to see go a little bit a little bit about who miss meach is and why she would be the perfect person to talk to regarding this interstellar traveler called Oumuamua. Oumuamua. That's O-U-M-U-A-M-U-A. Once you get the spelling right, it's not that hard to say for the first. Meach is an astronomer. She deals with astrobiology, solar system bodies. She's a part of a team for NASA's Astrobiology Institute, the NAI, NAI, NASA's Astrobiology Institute, Institute for Astronomy, IFA. Her research areas include comets and their relation to the distribution of early solar system volatiles and origin of terrestrial water. Now, it's important that I get these kind of guests because they are right in the center of the discussion that occurs around all these central research projects. So while you have a central research product under NASA and the Astrobra, uh, the uh, Institute for Astronomy, you'll have a group of amateurs, semi-professionals who are also working on the theorem outside of the scope that these folks are working with. Uh, so again, her research areas are comets and the relation to the distribution of early solar system volatiles and the origin of terrestrial water. And that's that's the type of research that's really on top of the list of a lot of things that's going on because people want to know how do we get water? Did Mars have water? Where did Mars's water go? She's been involved uh, with Manx comets testing dynamical models, comet volatiles, comet asteroid space missions characterizing Earth's primordial water interstellar planetesimals that pretty much wraps up everything that she does and it has everything to do with transient objects has everything to do with volatiles i.e. water H2O CO and CO2 is really the comet volatiles that she finds most interesting. She's been a part of the Deep Impact mission where they took an impactor and crashed it into um, uh, the comet to, to, to discover what was under the surface. And we're going to talk to her about that and get her interpretation of that. I do thank you all for listening to this session of Collision Course. I um, want to say hello to all our friends, Jessica Stone, uh, Robin, Sean, Bob, Debbie, uh, Joe, New Jersey, uh, Cosmic Obsession, all these folks and more on Facebook, Twitter. If they're listening, I want them to know that they're, they're, they're a part of um, good research done by citizens who have the ability to get things done. We're going to be coming on the other side of the break here, uh, 6.26, so at about uh, 6.31, I'll have Karen on the phone, and we're going to talk about the interstellar space traveler Oumuamua, that flat, cigar-shaped asteroid that came zipping in between Mercury and the sun and zipping right back out never to return. 
Uh, you'll find out why. <clears throat> I went in search of a picture. Karen said, I don't know why, but you'll never see it again. Excuse me. I thought that was pretty funny. I went to go take a picture and I didn't know what I was doing. So I'm going to give you some tips about that on the other side of the break. Uh, remember, when we do hear from Karen, she's an astrobiologist dealing with comets and volatiles on comets and the possibility or how uh Earth got its water. She's also dealt with the Panstar survey on the, uh, located at the Haleakala, Haleakala Observatory in Hawaii. Panstars is the uh, observatory survey that discovered <clears throat> Oumuamua. The reason why I wanted to have you on, besides the Oumuamua, and basically because of Oumuamua, is that I'm, I'm highly interested in these these objects. I, I, I suppose I should say right away that when we talked in my second email, I said to you that I tried to recover Oumuamua, and, and I want you to know that it's sheer pretty much just out of sheer lack of knowledge and insight that when I went and took my uh, telescope and put it in the location that Oumuamua would be, I did not know at the time that the relative magnitude was 31 or somewhere in that. Anything on something that looks like a long period comet orbit or coming from outside the solar system uh, moves very quickly when it's close to the sun. So even a few months away from its closest approach to Earth, it was too faint for even the biggest telescopes. Right. And uh, for, any, for, for, for the listeners, and they all know, part of what I do is when we talk about objects like Oumuamua or other comets is, is I do have a network and the ability to, to take some really nice qualified images of the objects. And I think I got overly excited and I just thought it would be a, a, another uh, ordinary everyday object. But you and I both know it's not ordinary or every day that we have something like Oumuamua come through our uh, inner solar system. Now, when you received the information on October 16th, I believe it was in 2017, did you have to wait a couple of days until the October 19th date to, to, to say, okay, it really is here? Well, um, I'm trying to remember the timeline now. It was discovered on the 17th, I believe. Hard for me to believe I've forgotten some of these details. And then it took them just a couple days to confirm um, that, it, no, it was, I think it was discovered on the 19th. And then they looked back into the data from the previous night and found it in the previous night's data, so on the 18th. But with only two nights of data, you don't get a very good orbit, so it could have been any number of things. But they immediately started to get follow-up observations because this was part of a near-Earth object survey, and so they always follow up everything that looks like it's moving uh, rapidly with respect to the Earth. And then it was by October 22nd that they had enough data to realize that this really was... Um, on a hyperbolic orbit, so it was coming from outside the solar system. And that's when the um, head of the survey program called me at home and said, I think we really do have something that's coming from outside. Ooh. Was speed the red flag? Was it like, this is just going really, really fast and this is... Anything close to Besides... will be going fast. And so yes. it really is, you have to get enough measurements over a few days to get the eccentricity or the shape of the orbit. Right, I should, I should so recognize that. Tons of things that go fast by, by the Earth. But that, that by itself doesn't mean that it's particularly exotic. It just means it's close. And this one was close. It, it passed within about 63 Earth-Moon distances on October 14th. That is that is close. Uh, and for, for listeners... Um, what what happens with an object like this is you'll have over a period of time is you'll have 
observations from different places. And, and when they make an observation, it gives it a pinpoint of, of, of a position. And since the object is moving, the more observations you can get, they start taking more pos positional images. And then once they take the positional images, they can string them together and they can deliver back an orbit of what the what the what the tra how it traveled around the sun um on its way in and on its way out uh, was there anything in its orbit that made it harder to find as it came in I, 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 was it very eccentric it was very eccentric wasn't it and was was that something that makes it harder to see things coming well as i mentioned before anything on an orbit like this moves very quickly when it passes closest to the sun and if it's not if it's not like a comet where it's developed a huge tail that gets very bright when it passes close to the sun this didn't develop a tail and so it didn't get appreciably brighter. And so it was just very hard to see um, when it was very far from the Earth just because it was it was small and faint. Right. And in fact, I had just answered an email from someone today who thought maybe they had seen it naked eye <laughs> in Hawaii at the end of September. And so I looked up how bright it would have been, and that's only two, you know, a little over two, two to three weeks before it was discovered. And at that point, it would have been about uh, 10 million times fainter than the naked eye could see. So it just, it really yeah. was too faint to do much yeah. until right at closest approach. Yeah, and, and, and it, 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 it it's a couple of weeks that it was easy to observe. Yeah, and and it's outer shell or what what's on the surface of it is not highly reflective or, or did i read that it was actually a little bit more reflective because of what was on the outside of its shell or what's on its surface is it more or less reflective on an average scale more or less reflective than what oh i guess sand versus charcoal is there a difference between sand and charcoal as far as reflectivity well yeah i mean uh, yeah you, you you know that just from common experience because you See it visually as sand looks kind of pale and brown and right, right. really dark, and that's because it's not reflecting much of the light. Charcoal reflects, a typical charcoal, I think, reflects about 10% of the light. Uh, comets are even darker than that. They reflect about 4%, and that's because of the, the organics on the surface. Um, things like sand, wet sand, might reflect about 20% of the light. Um, dry sand is even more reflective. We have no idea how reflective this object was. Now, how bright it is depends on both how reflective it is and how big it is. And the only thing we can measure is the brightness. So you have to assume a reflectivity and then you can get a size or vice versa. You could assume a size and get a reflectivity. But since all we measured was brightness, we couldn't tell. So we assumed it was like comets with a 4% reflectivity, but that could be wrong. Hmm. Now, I know that you've been a part of of, of many different research uh, initiatives and, and missions, and that you've been uh, a part of the data and um, results of some other missions. Uh, one being Dimp Deep Impact, correct? Yes. And in fact, that was a and in fact that was uh, you know a very big a very big mission for you, and because you had uh, all that going on. Uh, with an impactor, and and then it was the relating of the information back uh, uh, out. Let me ask a question, if I can, on the deep impact. Was there any results out of the impact that was just not expected, or was any result expected in a sense? Well, one of the things that we had hoped to do was to um, dig a hole 
in the surface with the impact so that we could look down at the material inside the crater as we flew past and see what the fresh material looked like because anything that's exposed to space for long periods of time, the radiation alters the surface materials. And mm -hmm. so the mission was designed that you'd have the impact and then the dust would clear off and we could look in the crater. And to everybody's surprise, the dust didn't clear off. Uh, and so we never did get to look into the crater. And the reason for that was that the uh, comet was much, much less damp than we had expected. So it was taking a long time oh. for the crater to form. So that was very interesting oh. scientifically. And then we had the opportunity with the next mission to fly past the same comet and try and look at the crater and finish our experiment. But much like making a crater into a fresh snowbank, there was not it much. It kind of dissolved. So, you know, it was very hard to tell where the crater might might have been. But so, and then you have some, some interest with the Rosetta mission as well and some work with that. I guess what I'm leading to it together, because these are three main objects, um, the two comets, are, are definitely different than Oumuamua, but in your and what you're interested in in your research with volatiles, have you come to any realization that you've been able to find the great well of water on any comet? Well, uh, first, I was not directly involved with the Rosetta mission. I helped out with a few observations from the ground. Um, mm -hmm. I was involved with the epoxy and the Stardust Next missions. Um, all comets are very rich in water that may be 80% of their bodies. I'm keenly interested in understanding where water comes from that makes habitable planets like the Earth. And so that's the, the focus of a lot of my science right now. So there were no surprises yeah. with comets in terms of the water. Some of the other surprises with were how underdense they were, that they really do preserve early solar system material. So that we've learned a lot of details about comets. Um, can I, I'm going to ask another question about comets. Um, comets have a location that they sometimes originate from called the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud is located very far away from our sun and from the inner solar system. I was a part, well, I don't know if I can say a part, I was keenly interested in, uh, back in 2010, of a comet named Comet Olenin, C2010X1, I think it was. And this was a comet that, if the orbital path was drawn out, it also had a hyperbolic orbit. Though on its close approach to the sun, it soon disintegrated quickly after. Do objects that originate from the Oort cloud if they start coming in toward the inner solar system, is it automatic that they'll have an orbit that will continue to orbit the sun? Or could they come in and have hyperbolic orbits and there's no, nothing stopping them from having a, a one? Well, so far, we have not ever had a truly hyperbolic orbit other than the interstellar object. We've seen comets that appear to have slightly hyperbolic orbits, but that wasn't their original orbit. Um, these are comets that have come in and have passed close enough to the giant planets that the gravitational perturbation can alter their orbit. And then they look hyperbolic, but so far other than Oumuamua, there's been nothing that's come from outside the solar system. Um, okay. So comets that come from the Oort cloud will, will go back to the Oort cloud. Uh, to we'll, we'll Although back. if they do get enough energy by passing close to a planet, I suppose they could get ejected. But the hyperbolic orbits are so 
slightly hyperbolic. I, I don't know if they're going to escape the solar system or not. Do you have any feeling on the re research into Planet Nine and perturbations of objects out in that area created by an unseen 10-mass Earth object? I've, I'm certainly aware of it. Um, I've not followed it closely enough to have a, a strong opinion. I think it's very interesting research, and I hope people keep you know, trying to understand the orbits of these very distant Kuiper Belt objects to see if there's another mass, more massive object out there. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we have uh, big things out there because we do have uh, Pluto. We have other Kuiper Belt objects where which are almost as big, so to have something else at that size further out. Now, whether or not it's 10 Earth masses, I don't know. Right. Right. Well, uh, that, starting uh, to explore this. And that's, that's, that's very interesting. Right. And I'm just kind of relating uh, what I've read. So it, it's purely coming just from another source. Uh, I was going to say something. So when we have, uh, if we were, to, okay, this is what I was going to say. I guess what I'm leading to is as we're talking about um, how these objects, in the case of uh, Oumuamua, has an orbit that brings it close into the into the sun, and then we have objects that can come from the Oort cloud, uh, which reaches out past our heliosphere and uh, come in as as a comet. And then we have now these new discoveries of these far-reaching planetesimals like Sedna, like the the, the new Goblin uh, planetesimal and things. It appears that our knowledge of objects that are reaching farther and farther out away from the sun, i.e. ourselves, um, is really becoming more rich and more rich. You know, we, we have our spacecraft travelers, the voyagers and and, the, and and so forth, but now we're getting to the point where we're having actual knowledge and research done on objects that are a part of our solar system that are now reaching out so far that in some instances, somewhere in the past or in the future, Another far-flung object comes from another solar system, and now our two, these two objects are now creating a, a, a new interaction and creating a potential for these new interactions that three or four years ago nobody would really think about because the, these new revelations hadn't been, or the new observations and evidence hadn't been brought to light. Um, is that, do, do, do you feel that with these far-flung objects that we could have more of these, um, more interactions that could actually affect some of these larger objects out in our far-flung regions? Or are, are the large, large objects, uh, you know, these planetesimals, the goblins and the sednas, uh, uh, we, they're, they're pretty set in their orbits. Yeah, they're not changing their orbits. We are now getting the ability with big surveys and bigger telescopes to see what's out there, but they're not changing per se because of the new things we're discovering. Yeah, I guess I, I guess it, we, we, right. We we won't know until we know until our technology or our vision or our ability to see farther and farther, and eventually time will tell. Time is time is the is the visionary of us all for for the most part because in time we we get a chance to see uh, it all. We're coming up on. Uh, 3.51 your time in uh, California. My time is 5.51 p.m. It is 6.51 p.m. in New York City. We have another four or five minutes with Miss Karen Meach. Again, I really am appreciative of you to take the call. I know that it must, uh, if it's not, you know, it, it, 
to come on and speak with somebody that you have never spoken to before. I know it takes it takes someone with initiative and motivation to do that. And I really do appreciate both those things. Now, I want to know or give you an opportunity for folks who were just coming upon this information, because really what I brought you on about was Oumuamua, is when we look back into its past, which means where it came from, what will it tell us about how our solar system may have formed? Because we know that in its shape, it's a little bit unique. And most objects that, you know, that come from a creation of a solar system tend to have different types of shapes. So what would, what would what's our ability to learn from Oumuamua as we take it back to where it came from? Well, you know, today we've got the leftover evidence in our solar system of the processes that gave birth to the planets. And we have theories about how it works here and elsewhere. And with today's best technology, we can't really look at the earliest stages in other solar systems just because we don't yet have the ability to resolve those fine details. Uh, nor can we get at the chemistry. You know, the assumption is the physics and the processes will be the same elsewhere. But what I thought was really exciting about Oumuamua is suddenly we have a piece from another solar system from that early aspect of planet building that was delivered to us uh, nearby so that we could study it in a little bit of detail during a, a couple of week period. So the hope was to see if that same process that we've tried to figure out about how our planets got assembled actually happens exactly the same in other solar systems. And, you know, the hint was that, you know, the shape is a little bit different, so maybe there's some sort of process that caused that. There was a hint that maybe the chemistry was different, and you wouldn't expect things to be identical from system to system. So it was just our first look, and so everyone is anxiously waiting for the next one to be discovered and hoping that we'll have a little bit longer to observe it. That's wonderful. And it's the surveys such as the PanStar surveys that will be doing the uh a lot of the a lot of the grunt work, I'll call it grunt work, uh, because it's it's there every day that it can um, imaging a space to allow us an opportunity to see in inbound objects and have an opportunity to do the research on the way in rather than on the way out. I uh, have a question about PanStars because I, I don't have a lot of knowledge exactly how it works. So in its survey, the telescope operates on a nightly basis and it's taking images of a survey location and is that telescope like any other telescope it returns a set of fits images and when i say fits images for for the folks it, it'd be an image that was used for science uh taken by telescopes and the such rather than it saying dot jpeg it says dot fits and it has um astronomical information in in the header on the image so does the panstar telescope take images that are fits and then they go into a database and then someone physically has to go through and observe or is it run through a, a program and then it gets to physical hands? Well, these are Did you explain uh, that? fits images and they're, they're short exposures. So there's a lot of them taken every night. So they are automatically processed each night. Um, but, and I know that's some automated software that can analyze and assess whether things are moving objects. But there's a right. human each morning that has to look at the images because, you know, sometimes you can get cosmic rays, which are just high energy particles that go through the detector and it creates a, a splash of light that may look like an object and the software might think it's a moving object when it's not. 
And so a human will go through and look and say, yes, that truly is a moving object, and they'll try and classify it. 7.02 p.m. New York time, 6.02 p.m. here outside of Houston, Texas. Thanks for listening in. Hopefully you got to hear Miss Karen Meach uh, from uh, the NAI at the University of Hawaii. She's working with PanStars on research for Oumuamua. Um, their work right now is interested in where Oumuamua came from on its path into the inner solar system. She also deals with a lot of uh, other types of uh, transient bodies like comets and asteroids and the such. She's had um, some side participation with the Rosetta mission. She's had participation with Deep Impact where they impacted a, a comet with a copper projectile to see what the comet was made of. There's one important thing that I wanted to say. Karen has done a uh, a TED talk about Oumuamua. And I've read in a number of places, because Oumuamua is a Hawaiian name, and nobody that I know of, including myself, could tell you what Oumuamua meant without going and looking it up. Or if you relied on what people like Karen Meach are telling you that what it means. Um, I'll tell you that the scientific community and the academia, including Miss Meach, will translate Oumuamua as a scout or messenger from distant past reaching out to us. She says they researched via a navigator and a linguist of Hawaiian culture to come up with this name. It initially had the name Rama, and I'll have to look to see what that is drama means but doesn't sound good anyways maybe i'll do it right now once i say this but they're saying in their presentations and in their conferences Oumuamua, we researched it got the help of a navigator and a linguist and it means scout or messenger from distant past reaching out to us well again we are, we are having radio shows because we are the researchers and we're willing to go out there and do a search <laughs> and so if you search Oumuamua and what it means you have actually a hard time finding anything outside of status quo. Then there's website Ulukua. Ulukua, I think it is. U-L-U-K-U-A. Ulukua told us that Umuamua means the foremost soldier or the front rank in battle. I did not make that up. I guess I might have to go back to be sure that whoever interpreting the name is correct, whether it's the Ulukua, Ulukua, the Ulukua page is right. Or if our scientific academia is correct, because science says scout a messenger from distant past reaching out to us, it's like, hello, we're going to go by. Instead of the foremost soldier or the front rank in battle, Space Force, anyone? I want you to know that it's important that as uh, citizens of this dear Earth of ours, we should also have a Space Force. Citizen Space Force is a force of informed individuals sharing data about the events outside and inside our atmosphere. October 16th is around the day that the news hit about Oumuamua's travels inside and outside of our solar system, or at least it's soon to be travel outside of our solar system. We are surely trying to look back where it came from. Interesting, 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 or science. Interesting science. We have someone on air if I was to rank that person in talkability, I would give it a six. All these have to do with, uh, oh, are there omissions? Are we being omitted too? But I didn't want to make that up, and I'm going to move on to an article. But uh, science and academia went to a Hawaiian navigator, one Hawaiian navigator and one linguist, one scientist, one navigator and one linguist went into a bar talking about an interstellar traveler. 
three came out with the word Oumuamua in their mouth. They said it was a scout or messenger from distant past reaching out to us, but they had the interpretation wrong. It was actually a foremost soldier in the front rank of battle. We'll have to see. We're going to stay updated about Oumuamua as we learn about where it came from. Will there be more? Oh, there's a second part to that. So we have part one, a foremost soldier or, or the front rank in battle. And then there's part two, a scout. One sent forward before a battle to discover the position of the enemy. Oh, enemy. I just said enemy. I didn't even read that one. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's not even real, but it is real because Ulukua. I have to. I'm gonna have to go look that up. Ulukua. That's ridiculous. I only got there's two parts to it. Well, I read the first part. I didn't scroll up far enough. I only had the four foremost soldier in the front rank in battle. And now in the second part, I said a scout once sent before before a battle discovered the position of the enemy. Are we the enemy? Mm. And I guess all that all that information can be hidden inside some commentary research. I'll tell you last week's guest, Doctor Fusey. Dr. Stephen Fuselier, he was an interesting fellow. He was working with the Southwest Research Institute on IBEX. That was where he went to work, but he was um, he was actually working for Lockheed Martin and the high technology department because they were working a joint venture with the Southwest Research Institute on IBEX. I didn't know that up until our discussion last week uh during the discussion i didn't feel it was necessary to bring up or ask him questions about his work with uh lockheed martin but i did want to recognize uh that that is again part of our full circle as we move around all these topics we'll have shows that highlight all all, all that we've learned all that we can trust all that we must learn and where it's going to take us. As far as the interpretation or the translation of a muumuu, come on. See, friend or foe? A muumuu is the first known object of interstellar origin to have entered the solar system on an unbound and hyperbolic trajectory. That was something else I found quite interesting. When she said that a muumuu was the only hyperbolic object, I know that's not true. But Lennon didn't get an opportunity to travel out because it got kaput and wasted all its water, I guess. But for her to say that that was the only one, I, I, I beg to differ. It's the only interstellar origin, only object to have interstellar origin and to have entered the solar system on an unbound and hyperbolic trajectory with respect to the sun one, our sun. Various physical observations collected during this visit to the solar system showed that Oumuamua has an unusually elongated shape i.e. that cigar, and a tumbling rotation state, and that the physical properties of its surface resemble those of a cometary nuclei. They recently discovered that Oumuamua was speeding up <laughs> on its way out. It can't speed up. How are you speeding up? The only way it could speed up in their interpretation is if it was a comet and it was outgassing. Out must have cometary. Must be a comet because it's going faster than it should as it passed the sun. They were unable to confirm that it wasn't artificial. They showed that the physical properties of its surface resembled those of a cometary nuclei, which plays into their speeding up. Even though it showed it had no evidence of cometary activity, which if it doesn't have any cometary activity, why is it speeding up? The motion of all celestial bodies are governed mostly by gravity. And again, we'll see this more and more and more. These things are saying mostly by gravity. Mostly. Gravity's become mostly. But the trajectories, tra trajectories of comets can also be affected by non-gravitational forces due to cometary outgassing. 
but they just said Oumuamua doesn't have it. Because non-gravitational accelerations are at least three to four orders of a magnitude weaker than gravitational acceleration, the detection of any deviation from a purely gravity-driven trajectory requires high-quality astrometry over a long arc. And astrometry is just about observations. If you have observations, you can do astrometry. astrometry. Anybody can do it. I can do it. Anybody, you can do it. I'll show you how to do astrometry. Two free software programs, zippity zoop zoop. Go out there, take yourself a picture with a Fitz image, bring it back, send it over to nova.astrometry.net, bring it back, put it in DS9, boop, boom, you get astrometry. Astrometry is just all about finding the specific coordinates of a particular moving object or on one that's not moving. You can do either or. And as far as Oumuamua, as a result of non-gravitational forces that have been measured in only a limited subset of the small body's population, here they report a detection that is a magnitude weaker than gravitational acceleration. The detection of any deviation from a purely gravity-driven trajectory requires high-quality astrometry over a long arc. As a result, non-gravitational effects have been measured only on only a limited subset of small body population. Here we report the detection at a significance of 30 ohm of non-gravitational acceleration in the motion of Oumuamua. We analyzed the imaging data from extensive observations by ground-based and orbiting facilities. This analysis rules out systematic biases and shows that all astrometric data can be described once a non-gravitational component representing a heliocentric radial acceleration proportionate to R-2 or R-1, where R is the heliocentric distance, is included in the model. After ruling out solar radiation pressure, drag, and friction-like forces, interaction with solar wind for a highly magnetized object. There we go. Let's stop. Keywords. Everybody say it. Magnetized object. Let's use it in a sentence. Interaction with the solar wind for a highly magnetized object and geometric effects originating for a muamua potentially being composed of several spatially separated bodies or having a pronounced offset in between its photocenter and center of mass. We find comet-like outgassing to be a physically viable explanation provided that a muamua has thermal properties similar to comets. So they go through the description of the proponents of outgassing i.e., well, if it was a comet, then what we're seeing is expected. And since we're calling it a comet, we can lay in the comet's math and then set up the the result that we want. Yet we have to assume that that is what's actually occurring, and that's what they said. And they said, if, when science says if, they're doing a comparison to similar or unsimilar objects. Deep impact. Our guest tonight, Ms. Meech, uh, was a co-investigator on the 8th NASA Discovery Mission Deep Impact, launched in 2004, heading for Comet P-Temple 1, 2005. At that time, the mission goals were to create an impact crater utilizing a 350-kilogram copper impactor. Okay, so 350 kilogram times two, that's 700 and a half, 125, 825 pounds, give or take, refrigerator, copper, send it into the... Now, and here we go. See, I have all my friends, all my friends have their interpretation of the universe and they 
research their 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 favorite interpretations diligently they have their their information sources saved they go there and visit it regularly and i've i've listened to them and we're going to understand the the depth of change in between today's science and tomorrow's science because here we go they use a copper 825 pound copper impactor now it could have been made of anything it could have been made because it's just the impactor. It's it's just it's kind of it's it's there to 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 make a hole. As Miss Meat said, it was only designed there to make a hole, so that when they could fly by later, they could look in the hole and they could see what was made up inside of it. I.e., they were hoping to find something shiny and wet. But instead, what happened is it made a big, huge dust cloud that didn't go away. And then when they finally were able to come by after the dust had settled, it filled back in the hole that they created with a big copper weight. Why would they make it copper? This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop us. They're gonna kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious that you're so sick at heart that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. Important that it would be copper? Were they were looking were they looking for something with it with it being copper? It's interesting. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to research more about that. And again, collision course is about bringing these sciences to light for the public. This is my free speech. This is your free speech.